0: This is recording. RTI International, International. Forensic Damn. presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode two of the 2019 R&D season. Just Science interviews Dr. Brittany Coates, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Utah, about her efforts to use fundamental mechanics to predict infant skull fracture patterns. Over 600,000 children suffer from abuse or neglect each year. The highest percentage of those are less than one year old. After a child suffers an injury, clinicians and investigators often rely on experience to determine if abuse is present, but experience can sometimes be too subjective. Dr. Brittany Coates has spent years researching biomechanics to understand the difference between accidental and abusive trauma, especially in infants. Listen along as she discusses the role of experience in understanding head trauma and her journey to create a computational model to predict how an infant's skull will fracture in an accident. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello
1: and welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice operated by RTI International. Today, our guest is Dr. Brittany Coates. Dr. Coates is an associate professor and associate chair of mechanical engineering at the University of Utah. Her research interests have focused on the injury mechanics of the brain and eye with specific interest in understanding microstructural features and properties that lead to better prevention, detection, and treatment strategies for Injury in Children and Adults, she got her PhD in bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania, where her work was uh, in collaboration with neurosurgeons and ophthalmologists at the University of Pennsylvania to investigate repetitive head trauma on brain and ocular injury, and uh, her current research is funded by the Department of Defense, NIH, the National Science Foundation, and the reason why she's with us, the National Institute of Justice she recently gave a talk at the American Academy of Forensic Science meeting during the NIJ Research Symposium. That talk is actually available by archive on the www.forensiccoe.org website, so I encourage you to listen to the podcast, get some perspective about her research, and then go and look up her archived uh, research presentation to learn more of the technical details and see the rest of of the work that she's done. Her topic uh, was using fundamental mechanics to predict infants gall fracture patterns. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Coates.
2: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me here.
1: So this is a very important area. Obviously, we uh, care a great deal not only about uh, infants who have been abused, but also making sure that we accurately are able to diagnose this abuse in children. Your particular uh, research is in infants, which is an extremely difficult area and, and of course, hundreds of thousands of children are victims of abuse and neglect every year.
2: That's correct. Yeah, I think it's about um, 680,000, so somewhere around 600,000 children every year suffer from abuse or neglect, and the highest percentage of those are definitely less than one year old. So, they're definitely a target population, the most vulnerable population because they can't tell you what happened, and so we often rely on whether the story that was provided matches what we're seeing in the child, the injuries that we see in the child.
1: So this must be a very difficult area of research to do because, I mean, we all deeply want to protect children, but it also requires this examination of, you know, mechanical engineering and things of that nature. It's an unusual research area. How did you get involved in it initially?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, When I was, in college, uh, getting my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. I knew I always wanted to go into bioengineering, um, but I was exploring what fields were out there that combined mechanics and um, biology. And you know, honestly, there wasn't much that I was aware of when I was an undergraduate. And so it wasn't until I got to grad school that I even became aware that the world of biomechanics is huge. Specifically, traumatic brain injury and traumatic eye injury, um, I didn't even know those existed until I actually met uh, Dr. Susan Margulies at University of Pennsylvania, who is, uh, who is my Ph.D. advisor, and she's an expert in pediatric head trauma, and it wasn't until I met her that I really kind of discovered this field of pediatric injury, specifically with the head, and it was just kind of eye-opening that it existed and how important it was and how little data was actually in this field. And so during my training at University of Pennsylvania, a lot of what I had to do, I had the mechanics background, but I had to learn about the brain and the eye and all the the microstructures and the biology aspects of it. I just found it fascinating. And so I've kind of kept in this field and Susan and I still collaborate to this day on this project. In fact, she's actually a collaborator on our skull fracture project uh, primarily because we're using some data that she has that we gathered when I was a PhD student in her lab as well as some real case study data that uh, she has that we just recently published some information about. So, it's a close collaboration. There's not a lot of many people in this field. And so, we tend to know each other very well and work together, I would say. We're more interested in getting answers for children rather than competing for grants or funding. We just want answers.
1: Sure. It's a very rich area for the adults now, right? Uh, so traumatic brain exactly. injury is it has got a lot of visibility because of football. Uh, I used to work with the military, and they're very interested in TBI and its effect on soldiers who've uh, not only been in war but also just are exposed to training. Training can also be pretty substantial TBI, especially people who've been exposed to repetitive injury. So, there's a lot of people working in the adult side, but I suspect that the infant side really is getting, unfortunately, a little bit neglected.
2: It's true, you know, in adults, you have this rich test bed. You have adults who are willing to continue to go out onto the field every day and play and put themselves at risk for a concussion, and so you can instrument those players. You can measure the forces and tie those back to concussion if that person got concussed. So you have people making decisions to go ahead and be instrumented and tested, and you can get more direct links with injury. In children, you don't have that luxury. No child is saying that they want to get injured. They're either accidental, so you don't even know it's going to happen, or it's abusive where, you know again, you don't know when it's going to happen and you can't identify in what homes to put instruments So it makes it really challenging, makes progress a little bit slower, and we often rely on other tools besides direct measurement in kids. For example, creating anthropomorphic dummies or some kind of surrogate that we can drop from different heights. So it's a dummy that kind of responds biomechanically, similar to an infant. We can instrument it and we can measure the forces of impact in different scenarios, either abusive or accidental, and try to back out. What are the forces that a child might experience? We do have to look at animal studies to see that biological response and see how are kids different than adults because they are, they're very different. For the longest time, people have thought, well, can't we just scale down the adult knowledge and make it applicable to a child? And the truth is it doesn't scale linearly. So children are continually changing, which means their mechanics are changing, how they respond to forces is changing, how much force it takes before they get injured is changing. So everything's constantly changing in kids, and it's not as simple as just scaling from adults. You also have a lot more access to adult cadavers. So adult cadavers are donated often to science, and so you can use those cadavers to run head impact studies to look at how the skull's going to respond. And it's a lot more challenging, for obvious reasons, infant cadavers. It's a more sensitive age group, right? And so it does make things challenging.
1: So what kind of tease out a little bit, trying to understand how infants and small children respond and the distinguishing between accident and deliberate injury, I assume that there's several different uh, aspects. I mean, one is when a child... Uh, a child is going to heal differently, maybe better, maybe worse, and you're going to see differences with respect to kind of you know, what happens after healing. You're going to have differences in brain plasticity. A child, in some ways, is going to be able to heal better in terms of brain injury than an adult, but I assume in other ways it's going to be worse. Kind of just the overall aspect of how a, an infant and child reacts to injury, what are the specifics of, of those differences?
2: That's a good question and actually a very challenging one to answer because I don't know if we have all the answers. From a mechanic standpoint, there's a couple very dominant differences. One is how the body responds to an impact. If you think about the skull in particular, the skull in an infant is a lot more pliable. Obviously, during childbirth, it's designed that way, so it's easier for childbirth, and so the Skull has these membranous sutures in between, so it's not a hard structure. It actually is kind of a deformable structure with some hard components. But even the hard components of the skull are a lot softer than the adult skull. So it's allowed to deform a lot more and just respond a lot differently. Some of that may be beneficial. It might be able to absorb some of the energy upon impact. But what's also changing and different um, between An adult and a child are the thresholds or how high of a forces create injury in a child. So they tend to be a lot lower than adults. So it doesn't take as much to create injury. We also don't know what that injury looks like a lot of times.
1: I'm thinking of my own experience. I like to relate these things to my own experience. My oldest son, Joseph, when he was born, he hit his mom somehow on the inside some way and so when he came out, he had the hugest bump on the back of his head. Uh, now, that resolved itself, but it took, I'm trying to remember, it took at least several months to resolve itself. Today, of course, you cannot even tell that that had right. occurred, at least with respect to you know, sort of an outer visual determination. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to have told that he had that injury from childbirth by looking at his skull at a year old or two years old or today based on how it heals?
2: First of all, I understand completely because my son came out with a swollen eyeball. So I, I understand that there's definitely some trauma that goes on inside. And you're like, what being a happened parent to my <laughs> child? I know. You know, I don't. The healing process in kids is so different. And I actually don't think that we know a lot about the healing process and how that's different from adults to kids. They're constantly changing and remodeling and growing. And so it does heal a lot cleaner. But I don't think. Like within that first week, if you would have saw that, would you be able to distinguish it as birth trauma from, let's just say, accidental trauma? I mean, there's records at birth, so obviously someone would have seen it when it came out. But I really don't think that we just know enough, right? And, you know, clinicians see these injuries all the time, and I would say that many times it doesn't cause concern because they've seen them a lot and that's actually one of the interesting things in this field is a lot of it and primarily most of it is by experience so if you've seen an injury a lot you get accustomed to it but do we really understand it the answer is probably no right and so are there aspects of different injuries that allow us to kind of tease that out can we understand them better tease out what's normal or what's typical and what's atypical and not really that it's not normal because skull fractures and other injuries happen all the time to little kids do they match the histories that's being provided
1: you do have some advantage in the sense that kids are only able to hurt themselves so much right I mean they they're they're smaller so when they fall down you know there's only so much even uh, trauma that they can do to themselves you know I fell down the stairs when I was a kid and I was bruised all over Mm -hmm. in very particular ways I'm sure and that explains a lot for me I suppose but generally speaking I abusive kind of trauma it should have again trying to be dispassionate about this a much mm-hmm. different mechanical profile than accidental trauma
2: yeah it should just like with every accident is unique probably every abusive scenario is unique and I would say in the most severe abusive cases those are not the challenging cases for clinicians or for the medical legal field I think they all know what's dramatically atypical, and they can identify it. I think one of the challenges, though, is if you have more subtle injury that's occurring and this child has been seen in the emergency room or in de- different f- physicians' offices for multiple different reasons, and it's a little too subtle to be certain. And so those are the cases that are always concerning, right? When you're making that call and you're trying to determine, am my concern for abuse? And if I'm right, that's great, but if I'm wrong, I probably just cause a lot of problems for this family. Or like, how am I gonna play this out, basically? Do I flag it or do I not flag it? And there's a lot of that gray area where I think some of the data is needed. And so you're looking for injuries that are actually overlapping both accidental and abusive trauma that can happen in both scenarios but that there's probably pieces of them that we can tease out if we just understood the mechanics better. Basically, when you have a certain force and it's impacted in a certain way, it leads to this type of an injury. And maybe that injury is also present in an accidental fall, but it would require a different scenario to result in it. So that's why a lot of it just ties back to the history that's provided and how well it matches. And I think that's where we're really gonna start teasing apart this gray zone and trying to make a little bit more informed decisions one way or the other. Because there is some racial bias when it comes to diagnosing abuse. That's well characterized in the the literature. There's a lot of biases, socioeconomic status biases. And so I think by having this data, you start to clean that up just a little bit.
1: So this really is the focus of the NIJ research project you're doing, trying to look at some of these uh, lower impact accidental injuries and understand them better.
2: Exactly. Yes.
1: So how did you approach that problem? Tell us about your specific research for NIJ and how it addresses some of these gaps in knowledge.
2: When I was getting my PhD at University of Pennsylvania, my PhD dissertation was actually focused on predicting skull fracture in infants. And it was focused on, can we predict when skull fracture is going to happen or not? That was it. Yes or no? Would you expect a skull fracture? And again, it was focused on accidental scenarios. Why do we focus on accidental scenarios? Because they're easier, I should say, to get real-world data. You can talk to families about their child's fall. It's easier to simulate. You can't very well talk to people who are accused of abuse about how they abuse their child. It's a lot more difficult. So our thought process is if we can better characterize accidents, then we know what's generally outside the realm of accidents and help kind of tie the accidental stories to the injuries. And so... My PhD dissertation was focused on measuring the head impact forces and predicting whether those forces led to skull fracture. And as I said, skull fractures happen all the time in children, just even from accidental trauma. And so we were able to predict skull fracture in certain scenarios, and sometimes in an accidental fall it may have been like a 90% probability of skull fracture. But there's still a lot that's so unknown about skull fractures Meaning, I would say one of the biggest limitations is that we weren't characterizing the actual fracture pattern. We were only characterizing whether it exists or not. So it's a little bit more vague. The skull fracture pattern is relying on certain aspects. It's relying on the impact force, impact direction, the age of the child, the skull properties. So there's a lot more information about the fall itself that can be gleaned from a fracture pattern versus just saying yes or no there's a fracture and so that's really where we started with the NIJ grant so it's been many years later where I wanted to tackle this question but I just felt like I didn't quite have the fracture mechanics expertise that I needed and then we hired someone um, at our institution at the University of Utah Ashley Spear and she's an expert in fracture mechanics now her expertise is in modeling and predicting crack patterns in metal in airplane wings and in other structures not in pediatric bone but that's where our expertise actually worked really well together in creating something that can actually predict bone fracture patterns from different falls and so we collaborated for this grant and the the focus of the grant is to create a computational model or tool set really that can predict given a specific impact in a specific location in a two and a half month old child, how does the skull fracture grow? How does the crack grow? And in what plates does it grow? Where does it stop? And by being able to create this tool set, now we have a tool that we can use to ask so many questions about the mechanics of skull fracture. If we change the height, how does that pattern change? If we change the location even just a little bit, so if a child like tilts their head as they're falling, how does that change the skull fracture pattern? If the skull is thinner in specific regions, because every child has slightly different variations in their skull, how does that affect the skull fracture pattern? And so the purpose of this grant is to create the tool set, and then our hope is to use this tool set to start to answer all these questions and come up with all the nuances of skull fracture patterns so that when people see a pattern, they can understand whether it's at least within the realm of reality of the history that's provided.
1: It's interesting to relate it to metal fracture dynamics. because That's something I can I can understand in the sense that there are very particular kinds of effects, and those effects are very well understood with respect to the morphology of the cracks. So if there's hydrogen embrittlement in a piece of steel, you're going to have a certain kind of fracture pattern. Obviously, they follow the microcrystalline structure. You can look at, you know, what's, concave versus convex kinds of fractures and other kinds of aspects of the morphology of a crack actually tell you an awful lot about why the crack occurred.
2: Exactly,
1: so yes. are you talking about being able to get in it? Did your research get to the point of that level of understanding of the skull, which is obviously much more complex as a system than, mm-hmm. you know, a wing?
2: Right. That's a great question because... One thing that makes infants extremely unique from adults is that the microstructure of their skull is very different than adults. In fact, um, in the microstructure of the infant skull, they have these fibers that run radially along each skull plate. So if you feel the side of your head, you have a bony protuberance on your each skull plate on your skull, and that's really where the bone started to form, and then it grows radially out from that and in infants there's these fibers called trabeculae that actually guide that growth and they're present in infants and what this means is that any skull fracture pattern actually driven quite dramatically by the presence of those fibers. It's often harder to cross fibers than it is to go in between fibers and so adults don't have that. Adult material properties are what we call isotropic meaning they're typically independent of direction, whereas in infants, they're very anisotropic, meaning if you bend something or pull something in one direction, it responds very differently than in another direction. So this, this anisotropy, or difference in directionality, is extremely important to predicting skull fracture in, in children. And so we've taken that level of microstructure into consideration. We're really looking at localized orientations on the skull and making sure that that's included in our modeling. And it's such an important aspect to the predictions that we actually started out with a more simplified model at first and we weren't getting good prediction patterns. And so we put this back in and lo and behold, we actually were getting some really accurate skull fracture patterns. So that level of microstructure is very important. Of course, there's another level where, as I said, you have different thinner regions and thicker regions so, a lot of more heterogeneous structures. You can have defects in the skull. We're not quite there yet, looking at that level.
1: So, you actually were able to do these experiments using human infant skull specimens from autopsy, and you were looking at parietal and occipital bone. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about parietal versus occipital bone, and especially do both of them have the trabecular fibers and are seeing the similar effects? It's kind of to lay out the typology here a little bit for us
2: one of the important aspects of this project is that we characterize the infant cranial bone so that we can accurately put it into our model so when we characterize it we basically want to take little itty bitty specimens of bone we want to apply forces to them and see how the bone responds how much it bends and we want to characterize this anisotropy so we have to do it in multiple directions And we were fortunate enough to be able to get small specimens of bone from autopsies being performed. And so we were able to perform this test and we put them into our model. And there is a substantial difference between the occipital bone, which is at the back of your head, and the parietal bone, which is on the side of your head, in infants. They are unique material properties. Interestingly enough, they kind of seem to not follow logical perception of what is the stiffer, stronger bone. Any clinician and anyone um, who's ever had a a child, they would probably say that the back of the head is the stiffer, stronger bone and the side of the head is the softer. But when you actually characterize the material properties, which are a little bit different than the structural stiffness, the material properties of the parietal bone are actually a lot stiffer and um, a lot stronger than the occipital bone, so the back of your head, but what makes the occipital bone just seem structurally stronger is it's very thick. It's a lot thicker bone. And so it's, it's kind of interesting how the human body protects itself, right? You have the stronger bone, so your body made it a little bit thinner, and you have a weaker bone, so your body made it a little thicker.
0: So my
1: son's injury was in his occipital bone, because that's kind of how you're coming out the birth now, right? You're kind of backing out a little bit. But it also, I guess, would depend upon the age of the infant, right? A newborn is going to have the softest, bone regardless. And so there's also I assume differences from birth to, you know, twelve months that are pretty substantial there as they I assume they get much stiffer and stronger as they age pretty quickly in infancy.
2: Yeah. They do. So infant bone is and the strength of infant bone and the stiffness of of infant bone definitely increases with age. So as you get older, your bone gets stronger and it gets stiffer. Just to kind of put it into perspective, so this is probably about uh, less than a year old. Infants are about 10 to 20 times less stiff than adult bone. So a lot more flexible, a lot of pliable. This is actually highly dependent though on that orientation. So if you think of yourself having a rope, right? And if you pull along the direction of the fibers of the rope, it's pretty strong. But if you pulled along the direction, like pulling the fibers apart, it's pretty weak. And so that's that directional dependence that I was talking about. And so that 10 to 20 times less stiff than adult bone, that's when you're pulling the fibers apart in the infant bone. If you're pulling along the fibers, the infant cranial bone's only about five times less stiff. But it definitely gets stronger with age, which is the protection mechanism. And it's, if you think about it, Toddlers fall all the time, right? And it's really important that by the time they're a toddler that their skull gets thick enough to support it. Whereas infants, you know, they're not supposed to be mobile. They're not walking around, especially the young infants. And so their skull is a lot more pliable and a lot less structured, protective. And so that's what actually makes infants a lot more um, at risk. For injury.
1: Yeah, you can imagine you can imagine sort of the evolutionary idea, right? The, the infant skull is designed to accommodate brain growth. You know, I assume so. Those fibers actually make sense how you're describing them because they would, I assume, are relatively pliable as the brain grows, and then the skull can kind of accommodate that more easily. But then, as exactly when the child is going to start running around on their own is when the skull is becoming uh, stiffer and stronger.
2: All the plates are fusing together, too, to protect them. It's, it's just fascinating and amazing how well yeah. the human body is designed.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. So a lot of what you're talking about here is actually the result of some of the research that you have been doing and conclusions you've been able to make on your NIJ research project, looking at the human infant specimens. How does, so how did you take the measurements that you took? and be able to create a model that uh, would allow this to be more universalized.
2: What we use is a tool called finite element modeling, and finite element modeling is a computational tool used a lot in injury biomechanics. You basically can recreate the 3D geometry of an object, and if you know how the components of that geometry will respond when there's a force you can simulate anything you want so as we talked about earlier in football per se we can go out there on the field measure forces we can have players get impacted see how they're going to respond and we're looking at that picture but what if we wanted to take all that information and and apply it to a car crash or a different um, field you can do that using computational modeling specifically finite element modeling And in infants, it's a little bit more challenging because we don't have that test bed. So instead, we take all the pieces we need to build the model. And the pieces you need are what forces are applied in the scenario that you're simulating, how is the material going to respond, and that's that first piece of our grant that I just talked about where we're characterizing the material response of the infant skull and how it's different in different bones and how its direction is different. And then we can represent the 3D geometry and we can put it all together and we can essentially simulate whatever we want. There's a really important component that anyone who does modeling knows and that's the validation to make sure that your model is actually accurately predicting what you think. A lot of people can develop models but you need to make sure you have that validation piece. I think one of the more common phrases is garbage in garbage out so you can model whatever you want but you got to make sure it's correct. And so, this is the tool that we're trying to create because then we can simulate every single impact scenario that we want. And the material property piece is one component. Probably another component that is extremely important is just that crack propagation piece, how the cracks propagate in the bone. And that's also a component of our material properties, is measuring how to. Uh, cracks or fracture propagate through the fibers or across the fibers, what's the threshold that it, it requires to initiate fracture as well as continue to grow. So we're doing a lot of fundamental tests on infant cranial bone with that. That work is still underway, but I would say that's probably the most critical piece that's been missing in the literature today looking at pediatric skull fracture is actually understanding the fracture piece. The finite element modeling has been used a lot by other researchers, but very few have actually taken the mechanics of the fracture and implemented them in, and that's kind of what's novel about us, is we're trying to take it back to the fundamental fracture mechanics, just like they do in planes, prediction of of failure and crack growth in planes and metal and other structures.
1: Absolutely. In general, what is the resolution of the finite element model that you're using, and is this going to be able to produce models that match up with the ability to image the fractures in MRI, a CAT scan with a, a living victim, or is this something that is, would only be in a post-mortem situation that could be examined? And also, is it looking just at a small piece, or is, is this kind of a whole skull model that you're building?
2: It's an entire skull model that we're building then when we do the fracture mechanics part, we take the pieces out that have the fracture pattern because those need to be at a much higher resolution to predict crack growth. So Your question is actually in a very appropriate one and an excellent one, and it's one that we asked ourselves when we were developing this, is what's the resolution of our model? How accurately do we need to predict that fracture pattern? And What are the increments of crack growth that we need to measure? And so actually we went to the MRI field and we looked at the imaging resolution of MRIs and we found that the imaging resolution was about two millimeters when looking at fracture. And so that's the resolution that we're looking at, is about two millimeters of crack growth at every step. So we grow our cracks two millimeters and then we continue to grow it until it fails. And so we purposely matched it to the resolution of MRI. Our goal is to have a child, you can visualize their fracture on MRI, and then use the data from this grant and from the future work with this project to determine whether that fracture pattern matches that story based on the information that we
1: have. Obviously, you know, our folks are, uh, you know, not just in the forensic science community, but in the medical community. and. And also we have a lot of people who are advocates here, people who care about victims. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, okay, when can I get my hands on these kinds of models? You're still in the middle of your research. Tell us about kind of where the research is sitting and going and kind of uh, where you expect things to be here with respect to uh, having a usable tool for the field.
2: Yeah, that's also a good question, one that I've asked myself a lot, is how do I make this accessible to the people who need it? and i think there's multiple stages right now we're in the development of the tool and we're extremely excited because we've just validated it against our first case and surprisingly you're always surprised when your research goes well right surprisingly it it actually maps extremely well we're talking like the crack length that it predicted was about I'm trying to remember. I think the actual crack length was 40 millimeters, and we predicted 43 millimeters, so really close. And the directionality of it was only off by a, a few degrees, so it was extremely wow. great. And so now our goal right now is to continue validating against a bunch of other cases because one case is just not enough. And so we're doing that right now. But finite element modeling is not something – that your typical forensic scientist is going to be able to use themselves, or your typical clinician, or your typical legal expert. It does take some knowledge of the tool. And so, the hope immediately in the short term is that all the information we're getting right now through all the parametric studies will be useful, at least in the broader sense of addressing some of the fundamental questions about skull fracture patterns and different accidental scenarios. The next step, however, is we actually want to take this model, create a lot of synthetic data, try to understand the variability, the natural probabilities in skull fracture, and perhaps use some machine learning tools to create a training data set to do some machine learning where then people can actually provide their skull fracture patterns, and then we can put it into a more readily available tool that can actually analyze different probabilities of being associated with different accidental scenarios. So The idea is to use this as a tool to create knowledge as well as to create something that's a little bit more accessible to people who really want to know the answers of, does this skull fracture pattern match this history? There's also other questions that we want to answer. For example, if you have a skull fracture that's on the left parietal bone as well as the right parietal bone, one of the big questions is, is that a single impact or is that a double impact? Are those two skull fractures from two different impacts or is it just a single impact that created that? And with this tool that we're creating, we're hoping to answer some of those lingering questions that are seen, you know, not every day, but often enough that people are trying to understand what's causing very unique skull fracture patterns. If you have a skull fracture that crosses one of those membranous sutures, Like, how much energy does it take to do that? Is it a really high-impact energy, which might be more akin to abuse, or can you actually have that happen from a low-height fall? And so there's going to be some immediate knowledge that's very useful, but the long-term goal is actually to turn this into something where people could feed in an image or feed in a data set and get out some probabilities.
1: Well, that would be really exciting, because that does go back to kind of the original intent here, which was to get past what is sometimes a very qualitative judgment where people are just struggling to to try to protect a child and understand what was going on and and be able to give a a more objective assessment about what is the likelihood that abuse has occurred. So that's obviously a a wonderful object to be able to, uh, to strive toward.
2: Definitely. I think any data we can collect will help that goal.
1: Well, I certainly appreciate, uh, Brittany, you being on the podcast today. You did a fantastic job laying out all the aspects of this work, and it was a real education for me. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you for inviting me. Um, I really enjoyed it, and anytime you want me to talk about anything else I work on, I'm happy to come.
1: I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Brittany Coates of University of Utah, for sitting down with the Just Science podcast today to discuss her work in uh, understanding infant skull fracture patterns. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit www.forensiccoe.org. There you will find Dr. Coates' webinar, but also additional webinars, guidance documents, reports, and conference information. So. Please follow the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Plan for a newsletter and please join us on the next episode of Just Science. Thank you for listening.
0: Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Robert Allen about a method to estimate the age of blood stains using quantitative PCR.